And really, this series that we're engaging in, that we're, that we're starting this series called To the Ends of the Earth, that's all we're trying to do. We're trying to make a moment like that for anybody in here that God has put missions in your heart to just kind of call it out, to fan into flame those embers and to say, hey, maybe, maybe the Lord is calling you to missions. Uh, for some of us, it might be the first time we've asked that question. For some of us, maybe we've been wrestling with that question and, and, and we're hoping Again, just maybe give you a little bit of a nudge in that direction, if that is what the Lord is calling you to. This series, To the Ends of the Earth, we're responding to the words of Jesus in the book of Acts and what we call uh, the Great Commission. When Jesus, he says this to his disciples. It's after his death and his resurrection and just before the ascension. And he's talking to his disciples and he says, you're going to receive my Holy Spirit, which is a whole other sermon. So fortunately, we only got time for one, so I won't even go in that direction. He says, you're going to receive my Holy Spirit. And when you do, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and if we were to kind of paraphrase that for us right here in this moment, because I do believe that those words do apply to us as followers of Jesus, just like they did to his disciples in that moment, we, we would say, maybe he's saying this. He's saying, hey, you're gonna receive my Holy Spirit. The power of God is gonna fall on you and work through you. And you're gonna be my witnesses. You're gonna go around and you're gonna tell people about the gospel, about the fact that, that there is a God, that he is real, that he's alive, that he loves them, that he died for them, that he is doing everything possible and even the impossible to restore you to relationship with him. You're gonna to witness to that and then you're gonna to witness to the things that you've seen him do in your life like the first-hand account you have of the power of God and the things that you've seen God do in the lives of people around you to say, hey, by the way, can I just tell you that God did this? And you're gonna do this in Phoenix, in, in Mesa, in Tucson, in California, and even to the ends of the earth. That's what we're responding to in this series. We're also responding specifically to the fact that in this particular moment in time, our lead pastor, David Stockton, his wife, Brittany, and their three girls have taken these words of Jesus very seriously. And they've picked up their life and they've moved to the ends of the earth to another part of the world that is strange and foreign to them. And they're just walking around seeing if maybe they can witness. Maybe if they can tell people, hey, by the way, God's real. Hey, by the way, can I tell you about what I've seen God do in my life? Can I tell you what I, what I saw God do in my family, in my church, in my friends' lives? Can I just tell you about that stuff? And, and, and hopefully, maybe in that process, they might make some disciples. They might end up baptizing some people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's, that's all they're doing. And that's a little bit crazier than it seems. Maybe if you know David, you're used to some crazy things you know, happening and it's, and it's no big deal. But, but if you think about it and you pull it out of the context of the weirdness of the Stockton family, you realize that's nuts. It is not a normal thing to pick up your life and your family and to go to another place, to a foreign land, just to see what might happen. And I really believe that, that not necessarily everybody right now here in the moment, um, but I believe that everybody in this room at some point in time God is gonna call you to something that's crazy. God is gonna call you to something that is bigger than you. God is gonna call you to something that is gonna mean a sacrifice of the comfort that we love so much here in America. It's gonna mean a sacrifice of finances, perhaps all of your finances. It's gonna mean even perhaps putting yourself and maybe even your family in a situation that is dangerous. And you may have to pay some of those costs if Jesus calls you to that. And the question that we wanna wrestle with today is is it reasonable to follow God when he calls us to something crazy? Is it crazy or is it courageous to follow God when we're in a moment where he's calling us to something that has a cost that we don't have enough to pay into, that has challenges that are far above us? Um, 
One of the things that I think we can do to really stir our heart and a passion for missions is actually to, to just read some books. Now, I know, I know, I know there are those of you in here who are like, I don't, I don't read books. I occasionally, once every two or three years, I pick up a book and I read a page and I put a bookmark, but then I move the bookmark like to the middle of the book so that my friends think that I'm reading the book. Um, I, know that, I know you're out there. I know there's some of you out there who do that. My old roommate, Adam Parker, he's right there. That's one of them, calling you out. Um, and I know you're not a big fan of books, but I really think that there is some power in, in reading books that are stories of missionaries, of men and women of God who have followed the Lord and see the Lord do crazy things. I believe that these things can stoke us, can stir a passion, and, and can strengthen our faith. Uh, if you go on our website, actually, we have a little tool. It's not a big deal, but we just put it together to try to encourage you guys towards these ends. We have, uh, if you go to livingstreams.org library, or you just kind of look for the recommended books section of our website, uh, you can find a whole bunch of books, and you can kind of filter them out by mission or biography, and you can read stories of men and women um, who, who, who just have seen the Lord do stuff. And bonus, if you're one of those people who moves the bookmark further along than you actually are because you don't actually like reading, there's this thing called Audible where you just get to listen to a stranger read to you. It's wonderful. Um, and it's not cheating. I promise you. It's okay. Jesus will still move on your heart if you cheat and use Audible. Uh, you know, I, you have my permission. I would really encourage you to do that. But one of the books that we really believe in along those lines is this book called Insanity of God. Faith Cummings loves this book. She's the one uh, who encouraged me to read it. She's the one who encouraged Ryan to read it. We have it actually out for sale in the courtyard. Those books in the courtyard, by the way, we're not making any money off them. We're selling them uh, at, at cost because we just want to put them in front of you and say, maybe consider reading these books. All those books are kind of the cream of the crop. They're not perfect. They're not the Bible. Their authors are not perfect. There are things in each of those books that you and I could comfortably disagree with and say, no, that's not right. But we think that those books are useful and will strengthen you and help you to grow spiritually speaking and help you to grow in maturity and, 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 to, and to strengthen your, your, your resolve and your love and your passion for the Lord. This book, Insanity of God, it's, it's, it's full of stories of what God has done in the persecuted church. The author felt like the Lord was calling him to go around to the persecuted church and to just hear the stories of what God was doing and how people were serving the Lord so that he could then write a book like this and strengthen our faith and then take these stories to other parts of the church where the church is being persecuted and put some wind in their sails. Um, and at some point in time, uh, the author, he, he, goes, he goes to Russia. He feels like the Lord calls him to the former Soviet Union. And he meets a man whose real name he doesn't share in the book for, for the sake of protecting the guy's identity, but a man who he calls Dmitri. And Dmitri was just a normal guy, just an average dude who lived in a small village in Russia and just happened to be there uh, during the communist era, during the Soviet area. And uh, Dmitri, he, uh, he, he was a believer. His father was a believer. He was raised a believer. You know, and then the communists came into power. And at some point in time, the, the local church in their little village, it, it got shut down. It got disappeared. And, and then somewhere along the line, Dmitri became a husband and then he became a father. He had these two young boys. And Dimitri started to feel like, like a sadness for the reality that his sons had never gone to church, that his sons were not learning what it was to be a believer, that they didn't necessarily know Jesus. And, 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 and he was just feeling the weight of that, and he felt like God was maybe calling him to start taking his sons through the Bible and to start discipling them. So he was afraid about it, but he, he spoke with his wife, and he said, I know this is great cost. I know this puts our sons and our family at risk, but, but I... But, and I, and, I, and I know that I'm not a pastor and I don't have ministry experience, but what if I started taking our sons and our family through the Bible? And he had no idea his wife had been praying that, that he would suggest something like this for years. And so they started doing this. They started reading the Bible and Dimitri would do his best to kind of explain it and to talk about it and they would pray. And then one day after they'd been doing this for a while, um, one of the sons said, could we sing, Dad, Dad, could we sing the songs that they sing in real church? 
And that was, that was a risky move, but he felt like the Lord said, yeah, and so they started singing. So they would read the Bible and they would pray and they would worship the Lord together. And then, you know, it's a small village and open windows and before long, friends and neighbors and family started joining us and, and the next thing you know, there's like a dozen of them and then there's two dozen of them and there's about 40 of them and then one day the authorities show up and they say, you've planted a church, you're gonna shut it down. And Dimitri said, I, I did no such thing. Like we just, we, we come together and we read some stories out of the Bible and we pray and we happen to sing songs and so what if, if occasionally we gather some resources together and help people out who, you know, uh, who, who don't have some stuff. You know, we're not a church. Um, but the authorities said, it, it doesn't really matter. You're gonna shut it down or we're gonna arrest you. But Dimitri felt like the Lord was calling him to continue discipling his sons and to continue leaving their doors open. And so before you know it, they had about you know, 60 and then eventually 75 people showing up on a regular basis. And there came another day when the authorities came and this time they took him and they arrested him. And they threw Dimitri in prison where he rotted for many years. Was this foolish? Was this crazy of Dimitri to do this? Right, I don't think anybody in here would hold it against Dimitri if any, if any one of those forks in the road, if he had decided not to wholly follow what he thought the Lord might be calling him to, right? Like, like if, if at the moment when, when, when it was the Lord calling him to disciple his sons, if he said, no, but if I disciple them, they become believers and they'll be subject to the persecution of the communist regime. I don't know if that's a good decision as a father. Or maybe if at the moment when, when, when one of his sons said, could we sing songs? If he had said, nah, you can like quietly hum the songs maybe, but singing is way too risky. It's going to draw, draw attention. And certainly when people started showing up and saying, could we, could we join you? If he had said, no, you're going to have to do something like that in your own house. It's just not safe. We live in Soviet Russia. You must know that this isn't safe. And of course we could excuse him if when the authorities came and they said, we're going to arrest you if you continue this. If he had said, okay, it was a good run, but I'm a husband and I'm a father. I need to protect and provide for my family. I can't be rotting in prison. And yet Dimitri chose not to turn away at every one of those moments. And I think it's an important question for us to ask, was he crazy, was he foolish, was this the wrong decision? Or was he courageous? Was this the right decision? The people of Israel, they came to a moment very much like this at one point in time. In the book of Numbers, we won't read the book of Numbers, but the story kind of spans a couple of books of the Bible. In the book of Numbers, the people of Israel, they've left Egypt, right? And God has fought for them and he's delivered them from the Egyptians. Sorry for the awkwardly timed sip of water. Um, so they've, they've left Egypt and now they're in the wilderness and God is providing for them. He's feeding them. He's giving them water. He's taking care of them. Enemies come and fight uh, the people of Israel and try to destroy them, but God fights for the people of Israel and delivers them from the, from the enemies. And now they're at the edge of this river Jordan and across the river is the promised land, the, the land that God has promised as his inheritance for the people of Israel. And so Moses picks one man out of every one of the 12 tribes of Israel and he sends them across the Jordan as spies to go check out the land and see what's going on. And, and two of those men were Joshua and Caleb, right? And so the, the 12 men, they go and they spy out the land for a few weeks. They come back and they actually bring some of the fruit. They bring this giant grape bunch that's so big that we're told that they had to put it on a pole and two men had to carry it back. And, and Caleb and Joshua, they bring their report and they say, this land is beautiful. It is fertile, it is abundant. They describe it as flowing with milk and honey. I don't know about you, but I love milk tea. Has anybody ever had milk tea? Like that little Asian sweet tea stuff? That my favorite milk tea, or boba is the other thing people call it, right? My favorite milk tea is, li I, like they call it milk tea. The one that I like is just like brown sugar melted down all syrupy, and then I'm sure milk. 
and I, th I think there's no tea involved. You pretend it's healthy, but it's just milk and, and sugar. It's wonderful. And it is so sweet. I'm, it's like addictive, you know? And, and, and this is the land. It's like the land flowing with milk tea, you know, that has no tea involved. It's just milk and honey and sweetness and goodness. And I say, this is the place where we could set up. This is the place where we could build houses and homes and cities and establish a nation and build our families. And look at this massive fruit that grows in this land. Man, this is where we want to be. But the other 10 spies, they, they say, yeah, all that's true. But here's the thing. There are cities of enemies. And there are walls and there are fortifications attached to those cities. And in some places, there are actually literal giant men who live here that will destroy us. There is no way that we can go into this land and take possession of the inheritance that God has promised us. It's just not wise. It's just not prudent. We should stay here where things are not great, but they're okay and we're alive and, and we know how to sustain ourselves. And the people of Israel, they listen to the 10 spies and not the two. And so God says, all right, well, this whole generation, you're gonna get to live the rest of your life in the wilderness. And not for 40 years until everyone from that generation, except for Joshua and Caleb has passed away, not for 40 years will you get to take a, a, a possession of the inheritance of the promised land. And so for 40 years, they live in the wilderness, barely scraping by, scrounging just for enough sustenance to continue on. And then 40 years later, people of Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, they cross the Jordan into the promised land, and they encounter enemy after enemy, and time after time after time again, God fights for them, and they find victory. And those walls that the other guys were so scared of, they literally fall down without a single act of violence. All the people of Israel have to do is blow the trumpets, and those walls crumble down, and then they sweep into that city, and they take it over. Because God fought for them, because God was bigger than those enemies. And that brings us uh, to the book of Joshua, or sorry, yeah, to the book of Joshua, chapter 14. And it says this, um, then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel was walking in the, in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and for coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord God spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakin, the giants were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord has said. And that is exactly what happens. Caleb gets his guys together with the blessing of Joshua and he goes into the land where the literal giants live and he conquers it and he drives them out and he takes a hold of the inheritance that God promised him at great risk to himself. Is he crazy and very lucky? Or was this courageous? Was this right? Was this actually in line? And, 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 I, and I believe that when you and I, when we face the moments, and I do believe that we will all face these moments when God is calling us to something greater than us. 
to something that is bigger than us, something that we don't have the capacity to go to, we will have a decision of what heart posture to take. And I think there's actually maybe four stops along the line of the spectrum of of cowardice to courageousness that I wanna kinda zoom in and talk about a little bit today. The first heart posture that we can take in response to the moment when God calls us to something that is simply bigger than us, that is simply more than us, is is the, the heart posture of the other 10 spies, it's fearfulness. Right, if we choose the heart posture of fearfulness, what we will do is we will look at the obstacles, we will look at the enemies, we will look at the risks, and we will look at the costs, and we will say it simply wouldn't be wise for me to move forward. It's dangerous for me to do that. We will say there are giants, there are fortifications, there are cities. We will say I'm 85 years old. I can barely get out of bed. I definitely can't fight giants. That's for the younger backs to deal with, not for me. Or we'll say, I'm 40 years old. I, I have a wife, I have kids, or I have a husband, or you know, I have a family, I have a career, I have a mortgage. I'm too, I'm too tied down. I, I can't follow the Lord to the ends of the earth. I can't pick up and move to another country. It just it would be too complicated. It wouldn't be safe. It wouldn't be reasonable. How could I possibly put my kids through switching over to another country that's not as safe as this one? You could say, I'm, I'm 20 years old. I don't know what I'm doing. No, it just wouldn't be reasonable to cross that river. Those giants, uh, maybe one, maybe later. And if we choose that, we will be like the 10 spies and like that entire generation of Israel that says, no, I won't go into the promised land. I'm gonna stay here in the wilderness and we will scrape by and we will be sustained. We'll, we'll get by. But they lived their lives eating dead birds that fell on the ground and crackers off the dirt. And they didn't get to taste of the fruitfulness and the abundance. They didn't get to build homes and see their children thrive. They didn't get to take those massive grapes and bite into them. Fearfulness will keep you from what God has promised you. So if it's not fearfulness, if that's not the right heart posture, perhaps it's the opposite, perhaps it's fearlessness. That must be the heart posture that we want to take if we want to be like Caleb, right? But I would say this. I would say fearlessness is actually only a sliver better than fearfulness, right? The fearless person is the one who doesn't see the giants, who's too foolish to look up and to pay attention that there are dangers, there are costs, there are risks. They don't recognize that there are cities and fortifications of the enemy across the river, and so they go in blindly and ignorantly. The fearless person is that unconsciously incompetent person, the person who doesn't know that they don't know what they don't know. The fearless person is like the 16-year-old boy who thinks he's a man. All right, 16-year-old guys, they know everything. I remember when I was 16 years old, and let me tell you something, I was, I was the best at everything and anything when I was 16 years old. I was the smartest guy, I was the most competent guy, except for in the things that I wasn't good at, but I was never gonna let anybody know that I wasn't good at anything, right? And I was, man, I was, I was the king of the world. I was fearless. And the worst thing that you can do for the ego of a 16-year-old boy is give him a driver's license and put him behind the steering wheel of a car. Because all of a sudden, you figure out, you're sitting there, and you remember that, I mean, all the guys in the room are remembering this moment, right? You sit behind the steering wheel of the car, there's no mom, there's no dad in the car, it's just you, and you realize, all I gotta do to have real power is just, and just push that pedal a little bit, and all of a sudden, 
there's horsepower, and I'm like booking it, right? I remember I was 16 years old. I had been driving for the long length of six to nine months at this point. I mean, I was a professional NASCAR driver, right? Like for six months, no accidents, no encounters with the police. Like I was a good driver at 16 years and six or nine months, right? And I remember one night, it was late at night, it was well past midnight, I had been at something way out on the west side, it was a, it was a week night, and I was heading home, I was on the I-10, and I was, I was just desperate to get home and get some sleep, right? And I am so fearless and so competent and so capable, best driver the world has ever known, and so I feel that it's perfectly wise for me to be going about 95, sometimes pushing 100 on the way home. And the I-10 had just been like, re, uh, had been, uh, like refinished, you know? They had new asphalt, that rubberized asphalt. It just feels like silk when it's brand new, you know? And I'm booking, I'm going 95, and I'm so, so aware and so conscious and such a good driver that I'm not worried about the police because I know that I would see any police officer if there was one, right? And I know I would never get in an accident because I'm just, I'm just a wizard when it comes you know, to the steering wheel. And, um, and then I'm driving down, and sure enough, at some point in time, I hear the woo, 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 and I look in the rear view mirror, and there are the ominous blue and red flashing lights. And I think to myself, I'm already going 100. Is this car faster than theirs? Fortunately, I had the wisdom to decide that that was, that was maybe not the best idea. So I, I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll pull over. So I pull over to the side of the, lo- the road. The police officer, she comes up to, uh, to my car, and, and I roll the window down, and she, sa- she says, do you have any idea why I pulled you over? I said, yes, ma'am, I was speeding. She said, do you have any idea how fast you were going? I said, yes, ma'am, I was going about 95. She said, do you have any idea what the consequences for that are? I said, yes, ma'am, a speeding ticket. She said, well, that's one of them. She said, you were going well over 20 miles over the speed limit. That's a federal offense. So I could take you to jail right now and you could use your, lose your driver's license. I said, I, I did not know that. <laughs> I am so sorry. <laughs> Please forgive me. I'm just a poor, small, innocent little 16-year-old boy who needs to get to school because school is the future. <laughs> and I just, I need some sleep so that I can learn good, you know? Um, Please forgive me. And she goes back to, to her car and she pulls out the laptop and types on it for like what feels like three hours, but it was probably only two minutes. I swear they're not doing anything when they go back there. They're just making you stew when they do that. You know, like, and I'm thinking, what's gonna happen? Like, am I, am I going to jail tonight? Am I losing my wonderful driver's license and my perfect record, you know? And, and she comes back to the car and she says, here's the thing, I'm gonna give you a written warning, but that is the last time you're gonna drive like that. I said, yes, ma'am. Yes, I will never drive like that ever again. She pulls away and I wait till she is way out of sight and I creep back onto the highway and I promise you I did not go one mile above or below the speed limit the entire drive home. I drove home a trembling, fearful, ignorant little 16-year-old boy. 20 minutes before I was fearless. But all of a sudden now I'm so fearful. The fearless person is the person who doesn't see the giants, who doesn't look at them. They cross the river, they cross the Jordan, and they encounter the giants. And when they encounter the giants, one of two things is gonna happen. They're gonna have their head lopped off. Or they're gonna turn around and run away with their tail tucked between their legs across the Jordan, never to return to the promised land again. So if it's not fearfulness and it's not fearlessness, maybe the heart posture that we're looking for is courage in the face of fear, right? What a beautiful and and virtuous thing, courage in the face of fear. Courage in the face of fear is the fireman who goes into the burning building to save the little old lady's life. Courage in the face of fear is the mother 
who goes into the, into the car that's been flipped upside down to pull out the child. Courage in the Face of Fear is William Wallace and Braveheart, the best movie that's ever been, been composed, right? It is the man, it is someone who realizes that there is something like freedom that is worth more than the danger and the cost that I am facing. It is beautiful, it is heart-rending. It's the thing that we write songs about. It's the thing that just pulls at the core of us, courage in the face of fear. But the thing is that courage in the face of fear has its limitations as well. When courage in the face of fear is all that you have, you are limited by your own limitations. You are limited by the limitations of reality. If, if your loved one falls off a cliff face and you dive off that cliff face because you have courage in the face of your fear of heights and you grab a hold of their hands, courage in the face of fear will not grow you wings. You're both dead no matter how courageous you were. So if it's not fearfulness, and it's not fearlessness, and it's not courage in the face of fear, what is it then? What is the heart posture that Caleb had? What is the heart posture that gets us through? I would say this, I would say it's the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is not, is not like an abusive relationship. It's not like, oh, I'm so scared he's gonna hit me all the time. The fear of the Lord is when we tremble because he is great, he is mighty, he is beautiful. It's the kind of fear of the ocean that you might have. Right? When you look and you see this is massive, it is to be honored and respected and valued, and yet I wanna dive in. The fear of the Lord is when we realize that he is so big that the giants are ants and the enemies are gnats, right? The fear of the Lord is like when we get in the ocean and instead of just trying to swim on our own in whatever direction we feel like, we start swimming in the direction of the tide. We start swimming in the direction of the waves and all of a sudden, the spirit of God picks us up like a wave and pushes us forward with more strength and more speed than we could possibly muster on our own. That's the fear of the Lord. It's a beautiful and a powerful thing. Dimitri, like I said, he was thrown into prison and he rotted there for many years. The author of this book, he asked Dimitri, he said, how did you get through your time in prison? He said, there were two spiritual disciplines that got me through. The first was this, my dad taught me to do this and I've always done this. He said, every morning I'd get up with the sunrise and I would raise my hands in the air and I would sing this song to Jesus straight from my heart, this specific song, I would just pour it out and it was my delight to worship the Lord every morning with the sunrise. He said the other prisoners, they hated it. Not a single one of those 1,500 prisoners uh, was a believer. Not a single one of the guards was a believer. They hated me for it. They would throw things at me, they would curse me, they would mock me, they would even occasionally throw human waste at me to try to get me to shut up, but it was my joy to worship the Lord every morning. He said, the other discipline is that anytime I found a scrap of paper, I would pick it up and I would find something that I could write with and I would write on the front and the back as much scripture as I could possibly remember and fit on that piece of paper. And then there was this pillar in my cell that was always kind of damp and I would put the, the scrap of paper up on the top of the pillar as an offering to the Lord. And it was my delight to recall to memory the scriptures and to, and to make that sacrifice to God. And, and invariably one of the guards would find the scrap of paper, they would take it and they would beat me. But it was my delight to make that sacrifice to the Lord. And he said, one, one day after years of being in prison, after years of not enough food and years of beatings, the guards, they took me and they beat me and they lied to me. They told me that they had had my wife and my two sons murdered. And they said, all you have to do to get out of here is to sign a renunciation of Jesus and to confess that you're an American spy, which wasn't true. And he was done, he had nothing left. He was at and beyond the end of himself. And he said, I have nothing left. 
prepare this statement and I'll sign it in the morning. So they put him back in his cell, but what he didn't know is that night, his wife and his sons who were not dead, they were having a prayer meeting with some friends and some family, and they were praying for Dimitri. And as they were praying for Dimitri, the Holy Spirit miraculously gave Dimitri the ability to hear their voices and their prayers as though they were in the cell right next to him. And he knew that he had been lied to, and he knew that they were praying, and he knew that they were still with the Lord. And so in the morning when the guards come, came to get him and tried to make him sign the paper, he refused. And they said, why? And he told them what had happened, and he said, I know you've lied to me, and I know my wife and my boys are still with the Lord, so I will not abandon Jesus. And so they beat him and they took him and they threw him back in his cell with that piece of paper hoping he would change his mind and sign it. But as soon as they had gone, Dimitri did what he always did when he had a piece of paper and he started covering it in scriptures, front and back, as much of the Bible as he could remember. And then he put it on that column as a sacrifice to the Lord. And a little while later, one of the guards came back. They saw it, they took the paper down, they beat Dimitri and he said, that's it. We're gonna execute you today. And he grabbed him by the arms and he started pulling him out and he paraded him front, in front of the whole prison to the, took him, take him to the place where they would execute prisoners. And as he was doing this, every single one of the 1,500 men in that prison lifted their hands to the Lord and they started to sing the song that Dimitri would sing to Jesus every single morning, all in unison. And the guard stopped and he looked at Dimitri and he said, who are you? Dimitri said, I am the child of the living God. And so instead of executing him, the guard put him back in his cell and sometime later he was set free. Dimitri was not a fearful man. Dimitri wasn't an ignorant and fearless man. Dimitri, he knew the cost. He counted the cost of discipleship of following Jesus. Dimitri was not even simply a man who had courage in the face of fear. Dimitri was a man who feared the Lord. Dimitri was a man who knew that the Lord was bigger than the Soviet regime and the communists. He was bigger than his prison guards and those beatings and all of that abuse. And even in the moment when Dimitri was done, when he was tapped out, when he had nothing left, because he was a man who feared the Lord, who obeyed the Lord fully, the Spirit of God picked him up and pushed him further than he could have ever gone himself. And I don't know what God is gonna call you to, but I know he's gonna call you to something that will be costly. If he doesn't, I don't think you're following the real Jesus. And I'm not saying that right now in this moment he's calling you to something very costly, but I know if you follow him, he will call you to something costly, and it just might be to the ends of the earth. And my prayer is that you are not a fearful person. My prayer is that you are not a fearless person. My prayer is that you're not even just a person who has courage in the face of fear. My prayer is that you're a person who fears the Lord, who gets in line with the Holy Spirit and is propelled forward by the power of God. That's what I'm hoping for you and for me. And now I wanna just take a second and speak specifically to the people who are wondering if maybe God is calling you to the ends of the earth. Maybe God is calling you to missions. There's two little steps that I think you could take depending on where you're at. The first is you can go to our website, livingstreams.org missions. We have a bunch of mission trips that are spelled out on there. You can get details on there. You can email the person uh, who's, who's leading that trip or you can register for the trip for some of them. Um, we have trips uh, pretty soon that are gonna be going to Belize to encourage some of our, our brothers and sisters there. Uh, we have trips uh, that are gonna be going, we have one, a medical one that's gonna be going to Honduras uh, kind of early next year. Uh, we have a trip that's gonna be domestically, probably Louisiana, doing some rebuilding and some hurricane relief. Um, my wife and I are actually taking a 
trip uh, to Southeast Asia, to the place where we lived in 2020, um, to actually kind of support uh, the ministry, the anti-trafficking ministry that's there. We need some crazy people who are excited to do something kind of last minute and a kind of expensive trip. Um, you can talk to me if you're interested in being that kind of crazy. Um, we have some trips that are going to, to Mexico, one pretty soon, and then one that'll be happening um, early next year. Those are great shallow end of the pool if you've never done missions. Um, it's just a weekend, and it's not particularly expensive, and it's a great place to get to experience what it's like to serve the Lord in a different place. Um, I would just encourage you, if, if you're feeling a tug and if you haven't done missions before, go check out one of those trips maybe. And then you can look in December, we'll add more trips. We're always adding them all throughout the year. There'll definitely be a wave of them that'll hit the website in December. The second step you could make is maybe you, you feel like, man, I think maybe the Lord is calling me to more than just a short-term trip. All you gotta do is send me an email and that's your next step. Alec at livingstreams.org. Tell me you wanna meet and talk about missions and we'll start figuring that out. And we'll start and we'll look, what are the giants that are in the land that maybe the Lord is calling you to? Is this God calling you? I, I promise you I'm gonna do my best to walk with you to make sure that you don't do something that's out of alignment with the will of the Lord, to trust you to do that. And we're gonna equip you and we're gonna say this is what those giants look like and this is what it's like to face them knowingly and this is what it's like to face them in the power of God from a heart posture of the fear of the Lord. And we'll be behind you as a church and as a family. And if it's something outside of that, I would just encourage you, if it has nothing to do with missions, because there are a lot of things that God calls us to that are costly, I would just say this, go talk to the Lord. Say, God, I don't, I don't know if I have the courage for this, but will you give me the courage for this? God, I don't have the strength for this, will you grab a hold of me and push me forward like a wave? Now we're gonna pivot now into a time of communion where we remember Jesus. Jesus faced something that was bigger than us. He faced sin and death, the ultimate enemies. And those ultimate enemies were nothing in the face of his perfectness, in the face of his broken body and his poured out blood. If Jesus can conquer sin and death, then there really isn't anything that we, can, that we can't conquer if we're in alignment with the power of his Holy Spirit. If Jesus can conquer sin and death, and if he's calling us to something, no matter how crazy it is, it's not crazy, it's courageous. It's good, it's right, it's beautiful, it's holy, if we're in line with the fear of the Lord and the will of God. Uh, if, you, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of the Lord, I'd encourage you to, to join us in this. If not, that's totally okay, we love you, we'd love to talk with you. You could actually go chat with someone in the welcome booth or someone up front about what it might be like to maybe begin a relationship with the Lord if you have questions about that. But if you would, if you're a follower of the Lord, go ahead and pull out the bread, which is more styrofoamy than bready. But, um, and I want to encourage you just for a moment to remember that Jesus was broken for you, that He loves you, that He cares for you, that whatever cost He's ever going to call you to make, in this moment that we remember, He paid a bigger price. He met a bigger cost for you. Go and eat. And as we take the cup, we remember that his blood was poured out for us. And so it may be that God is calling you to something and you say, I am too dirty for that. not even that I'm scared of the giants, it's, it's that I'm filthy and I don't, I don't deserve to be used by you.
That would be true if it weren't for this cup and what we remember with it. But Jesus is bigger than giants and he's bigger than your sin and he's bigger than your shame. And this blood will wash you clean. It will equip you and it will empower you to follow him wholly as Caleb did and as so many others have. And the same power that propelled Dimitri forward washes you and makes you clean and pushes you forward into what he's calling you to. Let's drink and remember the sacrifice he made to clean us. Jesus, we love you and we worship you. And we are grateful that you are bigger than our enemies, Lord. We are grateful that you call us not to be fearful, not to be fearless, not even simply to be courageous in the face of fear, but you call us to fear you and that is a beautiful and a holy thing, Lord. And so we look deeply into your eyes. And even right now, I actually feel like the Lord is saying this to someone, someone who's wrestling with this call from the Lord. I feel like the Lord is saying this. For a moment, with your eyes closed, just between you and the Lord, the Lord is saying, I want you to stare into the beauty and the strength and the majesty of all that I am. As though you're staring into the sunset, as though you're staring at the vastness of the ocean and the crashing waves and tremble at the beauty and the strength that is our God. And tell me, as you tremble at his strength and his beauty, if that fear doesn't give you courage to conquer whatever the Lord is calling you to. So Lord Jesus, we pray for that. We pray for whoever uh, that is or whatever people that may be, that we would remember to stare deep into the beauty of the vastness of the ocean that is your might, that we would tremble at that and that it would give us courage to live boldly. We love you, Jesus, and we worship you and we thank you for your strength and your might and your tenderness and your love. Amen.